uh, Kyle Peters, a longtime buddy of mine. He pastors a church in Hooks, Texas. And uh, he's one of a lot of churches that have surrounded us as we've gotten started getting us off the ground. And so there's all kind of people that have prayed for you and thought about you and supported us as we've gotten along the way. And so one more time, happy one year. I mean, I kind of can't believe, yeah. Uh, I've been flooded, man, with memories of like gratefulness and just different things throughout the week as we've looked forward, as we plan today, you know, when Courtney and I decided to plant the church in November 2019, we had no idea that a pandemic was coming. You know, we had no idea that friends were going to uproot their lives and quit their jobs and move with us. We had no idea what God would do. But I'm here to tell you that God has been faithful every step of the way. Every step of the way, God has been behind us. And when we didn't know what would happen, what was going to happen. But since starting this church, we've all gotten a front row seat to God's movement. You know, we've We've gotten to see baptisms and salvations. You know, I think about the, when our trailer was stolen and we came in here and we worshiped without, with the pieces of paper. We had chairs still because the wide lets us keep those here. We'd have nothing again. You know, we went from broke, had some stuff, we were broke again. But it was one of the, that was one of my favorite Sundays actually that we've ever had because it was, we, didn't, we don't, this is all great, but all we need is some music and each other, you know, maybe some preaching. I don't know. All right. You know, I've been thinking about when the Y, the YMCA said, yes, you can rent from us. That was a big breakthrough. We'd gotten like 32 no's before that, and so the Y was huge for us. And I think of all kind of just personal things like my buddy Cole, uh, my oldest son, he comes to set up with us most, a lot of Sunday mornings, and so I'll come out of my room at 6.30 a.m., and he's there sitting on the stairs with his cap on ready to go. You know, I'll never forget stuff like that. So... You know, truly, I can remember each of your first visit. I really could. I, I could go person by person, row by row, and tell you. And so I won't, you know, I, I want to just celebrate so many things of God bringing you here, but then I would, that would be the whole sermon, okay? So I can't do that. But a lot of great things are ahead. As the video just finished with, we're just getting started. Okay, so buckle up, hang on, get on mission. I can only imagine what else God's going to do, who else he's going to send our way, how else he's going to surprise us. And, you know, uh, the only guarantee that we have is that God, the all-powerful God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who tells the storms to stop, the only guarantee that we have is that he's got our back. I feel pretty good about that. So, you've seen in the video, so we're celebrating a year today, some, some things happened before that, right, as we were kind of uh, getting ready to plant, becoming a church, and uh, one of the things that we did, we would have like once a month preview services, we called them another church down the road, South Hills Baptist Church would let us use their facility, so grateful for that, and so before we ever, so before our first service, uh, I woke up that week with like this refrain in my head of a dream, right, because that's really... One of the things about today is like a couple years ago, there was, it was this immaterial dream, you know, and then now God is saving lives and restoring marriages and all these things. And so I woke up with a refrain. I had read Rick Warren's book on church planting earlier that week, and he had, he had written something similar before he and Kay Warren planted their church. So I wanted to share with you what I wrote back in 2020, early mor one morning, had this I really feel like God gave me this as we dreamed about what God would do. It is the dream of a place where the hurting, the depressed, the lonely, the numb, and the confused can find love, acceptance, hope, encouragement, and joy. It is the dream of a people who laugh together, cry together, grow up together, and grow old together. It is the dream of 
sharing the good news of Jesus with each of the 121,000 households in southwest Fort Worth. It is the dream of raising up young men who preach and who plant 500 new churches. We're one church into that vision. We've already planted a church in Colorado. It is the dream of sending out hundreds of missionaries around the world to share Jesus with people who have little to no access uh, to the gospel. It is the dream of experiencing the joy of disciple-making by making disciples who then make disciples who then make disciples who then make disciples. It is the dream of thousands of people worshiping Jesus together. It is the dream of serving Fort Worth in such tangible, no-strings-attached ways that the city could not even imagine itself without Redemption City Church. It is the dream of God's presence, of experiencing God and being with God because he is better than anything or any dream. We don't know what all God's going to do, but we know it's going to be great. So one year down, a hundred to go. All right. I guess I better preach. Y'all turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. I could talk, I could go down memory lane all day. But let's look ahead a little bit because one of the questions that I get very, very often is, well, where are you headed? What's next? What, what, what's the plan for Redemption City? Well, we're headed in kind of the same direction we've been going, which is to reach Fort Worth. And the way we're going to do that is across the table, is to have meals with neighbors and friends and coworkers and family members and people that we meet, and we share Jesus out of our hearts with them. So our strategy to reach the world is the table. And the room often feels like, it feels like right now when I say that, like that's, what are you talking about? Uh, but so it, when, how would you complete this sentence, okay? The Son of Man came... So the Son of Man, of course, is an ancient way of saying the Messiah who would come, who would save the world. The Son of Man came and he built this fantastic, huge military superpower that would take over the world. The Son of Man came and he changed politics as we know it. The Son of Man came to really take advantage of new media, right? No. The Bible says in Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, You know, if I was the God of the universe, sending the Savior of the world, I don't know that I would think to make sure that his primary method was attending dinner parties. Yet that's exactly what our God did. The New Testament actually completes that phrase in three ways, okay? So it says, the Son of Man came, uh, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It says, the Son of Man came. Uh, to seek and save the lost. And then, of course, we just saw the, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So the first two statements are one of purpose. So, how, so why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of Man come? Well, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But then how did he come? The third statement is one of method. So he came, why did he come? To seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom. But how did he come? He came eating and drinking. How did the Savior of the world come? With an army of angels? With, a, with an arrow and a sword? No, he came eating and drinking. He came going to dinner parties. He didn't come armed with an arrow and a bow, but with hummus and pita bread. And it's the most mind-altering thing you can imagine as the Messiah came to save the world. So read with me in Luke 7, verses 34 to 39. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say... so. The, so the religious guys were saying this about Jesus, they're accusing him. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him in his house. And Jesus uh, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the guy's table. And behold, a woman of the city, hello, who was a sinner, 
When she learned that he was, Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment that she brought. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus uh, saw this, he said to himself, now, of course, he didn't say this to Jesus, okay, but he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, man, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, touching him, for she's a sinner. He wouldn't let this happen. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to really notice verse 34. It's, it's so great. So he, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus, he wasn't just subsistence eating. He wasn't just eating enough to get by. What, just having one piece of Melba toast at a party? Okay, a glutton is somebody who regularly eats too much. And a drunkard is somebody who regularly drinks too much. Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking. Okay, so much so that this is the accusation that these Pharisees throw at him. The bottom line is that Jesus was an absolute party animal. Okay, his mission strategy was enjoying a long meal that stretched long into the night. He made disciples. He did evangelism, okay, around a fire, at a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and let's call it a strong pitcher of grape juice, okay? In Luke's gospel alone, in Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 7, he, anointed, uh, he is anointed at Simon the Pharisee's house during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house to eat. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus teaches about caring for the poor at a dinner party. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for some supper. In Luke 22, Jesus serves the Lord's Supper. In Luke 24, immediately after rising from the dead, the biggest moment in all of history, immediately after that, he has some fish with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he, he spends time with all of the disciples and has some fish with them. Okay, one theologian said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Okay, it's all over the place. So uh, the men that Jesus was addressing in Luke chapter 7, our key text for the day, Pharisees. And you probably heard some about them. These guys were the chairman of the No Fun Committee. Okay, they're always adding rules and regulations onto an already burdensome religion. And they really just did it to gain power and to gain control. They were holy for a living. You know people like this? Okay, and they looked down their noses at everybody, and they judged everybody else's actions, but they never looked at their own hearts. This is not the way of Jesus, okay? So a Pharisee, one of these guys, asked Jesus to come to his house for a dinner party, and Jesus accepted the invitation, which I think we can learn something from. Okay, Jesus, you know, this Pharisee, and Jesus had so many run-ins with these guys. Like, he called these guys a brood of vipers. Like, he was serious. He, he had a lot of run-ins with these guys. He, he wasn't a fan of them. Praise on the most theologically suits. But he, he had a lot of run-ins with him. Okay, we'll just say it like that. So, so this Pharisee invites Jesus to his house, and Jesus doesn't say, yeah, okay, um, do you watch Fox News or CNN? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm into it, but like, so who did you vote for? What socioeconomic class are you in? No, he accepts the invitation with this person who he has very different values from. Because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but Jesus did love a good party. As we're establishing here in verse 36, it says that Jesus reclined at the table. Okay, so his position isn't here and looking to see if they mess up on any theological thing. And, you know, that's not his position. You see all these, the, you know, theology police on Twitter. That wasn't Jesus. Okay. 
Jesus reclined at the table. He's relaxed, man. He's comfortable around unchurched people. Jesus was comfortable around people who had very different values than him. And you want to know why? Jesus loves people. <laughs> if you're, you know, he doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter if, not just people who agree with him, not just people who look like him. Jesus loved everybody. And I kind of think that we should love everybody too, you know. Um, somebody being of a different political party than you or somebody having a different accent or skin color or a different dress than you or whatever, these are not things that should prevent us from having dinner with somebody. It didn't, sure didn't stop Jesus. Now watch as the story turns and becomes even more interesting in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner read on Twitter that Jesus was hanging out at this Pharisee guy's house and reclining at the table and having a meal. And she invited herself to this elite party. She brought along with her an alabaster flask. So this is not like the flask that many of you take to football games, okay? It's like, a, it's like ointment, okay? And it's, it's filled with this really expensive perfume. It probably represented most of her net worth. And so she brings that to the party that she was not invited to. Again, so this woman of the city, read, not elite, just shows up to this elite party the kind of, with the kind of people they probably didn't even call it a party. They probably called it a soiree. You know these people? Okay, so she was dressed differently. She looked different, and in verse 38, she goes and she stands behind Jesus, and she's overcome, and she just weeps. Can you imagine anything more awkward at a party, you know? Uh, these uppity people drinking their drinks with their pinkies in the air, classical music playing, and then she, this woman of the city barges in uninvited. She starts weeping behind Jesus, and the music stops, and everybody fixates on this scene right here, like, oh, my goodness, what's he going to do? And they all expect him to condemn her. Culturally, that's what he should have done. He should have, lady, get out of here. You're not invited. You're unclean. What are you doing here? That's what they would have all done. Imagine what this lady's done in her past. Small town, everybody knows, you know. Imagine the guilt and the shame that she's under uh, to where she is finally in Jesus' presence. I bet that she's been wanting to be around him for a while. She's finally in his presence, and she just is overcome. Those people are in your office, by the way. They're in a class with you. They're next door to you. Uh, there are these people all around you who smile and wave, but then they close their door at night and they cry themselves asleep. They're everywhere in our city. So again, this woman of the city shows up to the party with no Evite. She begins sobbing, and then she kneels down and begins to wash Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment and her tears and her hair. Very, very awkward, but Jesus doesn't stop her. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't reject her. He doesn't stand up and go, whoa, 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 I don't know this lady. <laughs> okay, uh, lady, please, please. Uh, anyway, what were we talking about? No, he doesn't do that. He welcomes her in a way that probably nobody ever did her entire life. You know, uh, he wasn't too busy for people. The way that Jesus welcomed people into his presence, the way that Jesus welcomed people into his life is the way that we are to welcome people into our tables and into our lives. Like I said, Jesus was never too busy for people. His schedule wasn't too full. Now, he was the busiest man who ever lived. If you read the New Testament, I mean, all, the Gospels, he's always, people are literally pulling at his, you know, clothes, trying to get in touch with him. People, like, he, at one point he's making a speech and this lady interrupts him. It's like right now, if you're like, hey, do you have a minute? I'm like, actually. So all the time, just read the Gospels later and see how often Jesus is interrupted. All the time, and every time he gives, them his, he gives them his attention. Every time. He was never too busy for people. He never had too much going on. And, and again, the busiest man in the world, here was his agenda. Never sin and save the world. 
Yet he always had time for people. The people at this party, they just could not understand. They couldn't wrap their minds around why in the world Jesus would engage this woman, okay, uh, especially in this setting. But again, the thing about Jesus, he loves people. That's his whole thing. He loves people full stop. He would love them right as they were, right where they were, and where they often were where it was the dinner party, around a table, across the table from him. In that day, who you ate with was a really big deal. They had all these rules and regulations Jewish people did about who was clean, who was unclean. Just read the book of Leviticus later and you'll see how seriously they took food preparation, all this kind of thing. It was a big deal. And so whenever these Pharisees are like, this guy eats with tax collectors and sinners, it's because Jesus doing that was saying, they're okay with me. We're friends. And the upright people in society, were, they just could not handle Jesus dignifying these people in such a way because tax collectors and sinners, they were bad people. And these upright people were like, I can't believe he would ever do this. And so Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, outcasts of upright society, was a sign of real friendship. So his excess of food and his excess of grace are linked. Uh, A means of acceptance and welcoming that the world is never going to offer these people. And this is where we enter the story. Jesus has called you, put your name on it, to love people in a really radical way on your street, in your office, in your school, at your gym, wherever you eat, work, and play, right? So, so that we will recline at the table with sinners and outcasts and broken people and needy people. You know, you making some burgers and inviting your neighbors over to hear their story. Is you living on mission for Jesus? Yeah, it's great to go to Thailand and to go across the world and share the gospel. That's fantastic. But here you can do that as well, having people over to your house, taking people out. And, you know, people love being invited places. They love it. And in a post-pandemic world, it's more and more rare. So we have a real opportunity. I think our most powerful tool to reach the world is our table. I really do. You know, people who would never come hear a sermon like this would love to come to your place for spaghetti and a brownie. People who would, they hate Christianity, would love to go into your backyard for Labor Day weekend. They would love it right? And so God gave you that dinner table or that coffee table or that kitchen counter for his glory. God allowed you a place to live so that you could engage your neighbors and your co-workers, these people all around you for his glory. You're on mission with each meal, with, with, as you play softball, as you go out to whatever you're doing with the ordinary things in life, you're on mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he felt, obviously, that there was no better way to do that than to have, a, have some dinner with friends, you know. One word of caution, please. Don't be, like, weird or cagey about it. Okay, so my, uh, my brother-in-law, he's actually, I, I plan to say this before y'all came today. Tanner and Alexis, my brother-in-law and amazing uh, sister-in-law, they were invited somewhere uh, over for dinner to some friend's house a few months ago. And uh, they get there, it's like a normal thing, and so there's some other people there, and they're all kind of hanging out, they're having a nice dinner, they're all laughing, having a good time. And then all of a sudden, the person who made the invite pitched them on his new business. And it was an investment thing. All of a sudden, and they're like, ah, it's so icky, you made us feel like we're coming over as friends. Christians can kind of be that way with evangelism. We're like, hey, come on over for some spaghetti. And then as the dessert is served, we're like, so have you thought about where you're going to spend eternity? Like, oh my gosh, we were just talking about Zeke's contract. Is he worth it? And then now we're talking about, okay, I didn't see that coming. So I'm not saying don't share the gospel, obviously. Please do. 
share the love of Jesus. We have the greatest story that's ever been told. Jesus died for your sins. He took on the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. He died and he rose again in victory over it. And now he takes your burden. He takes all of your sin and stress and he gives you his rest. We looked at last week. That's fantastic. But don't be weird about it. Jesus shared a table with people because he loved them. That's it. That was, his agenda wasn't all of these things that we bring to it. His agenda was to love people. Think about the story of Zacchaeus. Y'all know Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a, <laughs> that went great. I didn't expect, thank you. And a wee little man. Okay, so y'all went to Sunday school. That's great. So, you know, it's a fun little, you know, story that we learned in Sunday school, but legitimately Zacchaeus was a bad dude. He exploited people for his own financial gain. He took advantage of people. He was a bad guy. And then one day Jesus is walking through town. Everybody's trying to get at Jesus. And then Jesus stops and looks up at Zacchaeus, the wee little man, says, hey, come on down from that sycamore tree and let's, let's go to your house and eat. You know, Jesus didn't start with, oh, wicked sinner in the sycamore tree, I condemn you. No. He said, hey, let's grab some pita bread, some olives, and go chop it up at your house, okay? Now, Jesus ended up talking, about, talking with Zacchaeus about his sin, but that was over the table in the context of relationship. Zacchaeus was pumped because nobody ever wanted to spend any time with him, much less have a meal at his house. And you can read the story later in Luke 19. But after one meal with Jesus, the greediest man in the Bible goes, I'm about to give all my money away. I just want you, Jesus. And see, that's the thing about radical love. It invites people to do radical things. So how are we going to grow? How are we going to reach Fort Worth for Jesus? We're going to have a meal together every week in small group. We're going to invite our neighbors over and, and flip them some burgers. We're going to say yes to coworkers and they invite us out to go places. We're going to reach Fort Worth one potluck at a time. 